you have a Bible, you can open to 1 John. We'll look at the last few verses of the book. 1 John 5, 18 through 21. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. It's our last week in um, 1 John. And we're going to start next. um, Actually, so at the beginning of the year, we're going to start a series on the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Um, All of the Bible starts, obviously, with the first couple chapters of Genesis, but it's all kind of there in seed form um, uh, early on in the opening chapters of the Bible. So we're going to look at that uh, for a little while, but uh, next week and through Advent, we're going to do an Advent series, which um, is going to cover, so the the genealogy of Jesus Christ uh, that you find in Matthew 1 and Luke 2, the genealogies have... uh, just a few women mentioned. And so we're going to look at uh, the women in Jesus' genealogies. Uh, The mothers of Jesus will be the the Advent series um, that we look at starting next week with uh, Tamar, Genesis 38. So go ahead and read that story uh, this week. should be entertaining for you. Um, uh, But this week is our last in 1 John. uh, And so we're going to talk about idols, which is what... uh, he wraps up with in that, that last verse, uh, which we'll read in just a few minutes. But um, sin, sin is a concept that has always resisted definition, uh, not just in our, our culture. I think we, we think, uh, you know, nobody, nobody knows what sin really means anymore. People are averse to the concept of sin or the language of sin in our culture. I think that's always been the case. Uh, people have always resisted uh, even thinking about sin. Sin is a concept that resists our definition because sin by its nature, it resists uh, scrutiny. It doesn't want to be identified. It doesn't want to be discovered and defined. Um, Maybe you remember that I've talked about this several times. Maybe you don't remember, um, but uh, sin, it's difficult for us to to look at our... at ourselves, at our nature, at our sin nature. It's difficult for us to look at it and to think about it. So maybe why you don't remember me talking about it so much is that uh, your own sin is preventing you from doing it, uh, from, from even looking at it, uh, let alone understanding it properly, right? Um, <clears throat> but it's a definitive aspect of our lives uh, apart from God, which means, you know, it's, a, it's our natural state or it's our default mode of operating, And if we're even going to understand or begin to understand our sin, uh, we need God to teach us about it. We won't figure it out on our own. We're we're just not even going to go there. Uh, We need God to teach about it, which he does in the scriptures. And in the scriptures, sin is uh, kind of multifaceted, and it can be understood from a few different angles. Uh, The Bible talks about sin in terms of self-centeredness, kind of ultimate self-absorption, self-focus, self-love. Uh, talks about it in terms of pride, uh, rebellion, and disobedience. Uh, talks about it in terms of slavery, something you can't escape, something you're, in a sense, compelled to do because of your sin nature. Uh, even talks about it in terms of disease, like illness. Uh, you're, there's no health in us. Um, one of the major ways that the Bible talks about sin is in terms of idolatry. And in our culture, <clears throat> idolatry may be the least intuitive way to relate to the idea of sin. Uh, it may be the least intuitive way in our culture to think about my sin, think about 
what sin is, define it, and think about it as it applies, right? Um, might be the least intuitive way that for our culture, idolatry, to think about sin. Uh, but the Bible's constantly talking about idolatry as something that we all engage in all the time. So there's a huge need to consider the matter of uh, sin from the perspective of idolatry and to address the problem that it presents uh, for our relationship with God. So uh, we will do that as we take our last look at First John. The three things I want to talk about this morning are a definition of idolatry, the alternative to idolatry, and the antidote for idolatry. Definition, alternative, and antidote. So uh, let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, just as it is um, at the very least unlikely that we would examine ourselves uh, to, to think about what sin is, um, it's also unlikely that we would uh, receive your word well when you speak to us about our sin. Would you please convince us of your grace and your love for us that in spite of the fact that we are sinners, you love us and you gave your son Jesus to us so that it's okay for us to sit and listen what you have to hear, uh, what you have to say about, um, about our sin, about who we are by our nature, and about um, the alternative to that. We pray that you would help us, that you would save us even from ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when John closes his letter there, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Is he only talking to his original first century audience? Or is he also talking to us? Uh, I mean, the question is, why is it hard for us in our culture, in our society today, to relate to the concept of idolatry? So we don't think it has much to say to us when he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why is it hard for us to relate to the concept of idolatry to understand our own sin and our lives in terms of idolatry, uh, it seems to me like um, the answer to that question, why it's hard for us in our culture, is that um, the concept of idolatry seems like it belongs to an outdated, primitive, superstitious worldview. Outdated, primitive, superstitious. Right? That's what idolatry is. We imagine idolaters as hairy people grunting at pictures on cave walls, right? or uh, people in white togas in temples full of marble statues, or uh, people with kind of haphazard household shrines burning incense, right? It's the, those are the pictures in our minds when somebody says idolatry in our culture. Uh, those, you know, those people back then, those primitive superstitious people, uh, they devoted themselves to imaginary deities with uh, made-up names, fictitious, uh, fictitious stories and, and powers. They devoted themselves to these things, these idols, 
hoping uh, that their lives would improve if they did what their gods wanted them to do. Right? If I just say I love you enough to this god, then uh, you're going to bring about some good in my life. That's the deal we make with our idols. That's or they made with their idols anyway. Primitive, outdated, superstitious people. And there's no room in sophisticated society for beliefs and practices like that anymore, right? I mean, is there? It depends on whether you're just looking at the externals. Not many people probably have uh, little household shrines with incense or um, go to the temples with the, the big statues or whatever. Or if you're looking at the heart of what idolatry really is, right? We, we might not use traditional-looking little amulets or carvings or statues or um, shrines or whatever, but we still look to imaginary deities with fictitious powers. We look to false gods, hoping that our lives will improve if we do what we imagine that they want us to do. Right? Um, Tim Keller has a great book on this subject, Counterfeit Gods, that you should probably pick up and read. Uh, he gives... Uh, he gives definition to the idols of our culture, our particular culture, where we think we don't have such things as idols. That doesn't really apply to us when we talk about our sin or whatever. Uh, but he, he gives definition to these things. Our cultural idol, idols are things like money and things like sex, things that we pursue and things that we serve, things that we in a sense, bend over backwards to do whatever these things want, whatever will get us these things so that we can get what we want from them, things like security and uh, pleasure and comfort, right? And an idol is anything that occupies the place that is due to God in our lives. Anything that occupies the place that's due to God alone in our lives, anything that we look to instead of God to get what we were made for in our relationship to God. We were made to be in relationship with God and receive all sorts of things in that relationship and be in that good, healthy, intimate relationship. We were made for that, but we look for those things in things uh, other than God. So idolatry isn't so much about the objects. Idolatry is not about the carvings or the money or the sex. Those are objects. And, and most of those things that we turn into idols are actually good things that God made uh, for us to be received with thanksgiving and to be enjoyed. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's not so much about the objects as it is our relationship to those objects, right? Idolatry is about our relationship to things like money and sex, what we invest in those things, which is everything, my whole heart, right? All my time and effort, what we invest in those things and what we seek to get from those things, ultimate uh, power, ultimate security, eternal pleasure, you know. Um, when we sinned originally and we fell from relationship with God, we fell from life into death and a huge gaping hole opened up inside of us and where we were originally made to find things like peace and love and joy from God, now there was enmity and fear, and hatred, and insecurity, and emptiness between us and God, right? That relationship is broken and gone. And we can't live that way. We cannot live that way. So we develop relationships with other things, trying to get those, you know, get peace and joy and love from these other things. Things that we pretend can fill that gaping hole, 
things that we'd like to believe can bring us deep and everlasting satisfaction. And uh, we're like chain smokers with idols. We're like chain smokers with idols. We're constantly turning to this thing or that thing or this thing to meet all of our needs constantly, constantly. Uh, John Calvin said in a commentary on this passage, dry wood will not so easily burn when coals are put under it as idolatry will lay hold on and engross the minds of men when an occasion is given to them. Right? Dry wood with burning coals under it doesn't light so easily as our hearts light up with idols. Right? He calls it in another place, he says that our hearts are idol factories, constantly just churning out these uh, relationships to objects, trying to get what, um, what we're supposed to receive from God in our relationship with God out of these things. And now, you know, now we're pressing in on the sin that wants to avoid scrutiny, and we need to get more specific because so far it's been relatively painless, right? Just kind of ask this question on a philosophical level. Yeah, okay, I, I see that. There's a relationship that I'm supposed to have with God, and instead I have that relationship and look for everything in, you know, uh, that I'm supposed to find in God. I look for that in other things. But you need to ask yourself, what does idolatry look like in your life? Your life. Ask yourself your life. What does idolatry look like? Because it's there, and it's hiding in plain sight. You may be racking your brain to think, now, what is, what is idolatrous for me? What kind of relationship do I have? It's there all the time. It's hiding in plain sight. And it's successfully avo- avoiding your personal awareness, even if you're aware of the concept of idolatry in general. Right? Um, you should be able to point anywhere in your life and say, yep, yeah, probably an idol. Um, so what are the good things that God has made, that God has given to you, to be properly enjoyed with thanksgiving to him that instead you worship and you devote your life to and you invest everything in and you look to get eternal divine fulfillment out of those things. What are those things? What are those good things in your life that God has given you that you've made an idol? What is it that, that you believe if you just had this thing, finally it would be enough? It would be enough. I, would, I could rest because I had achieved this thing and gotten what I needed from it. What is that thing? What is it that if you had this thing taken away, this thing that you've got, if you had it taken away, you would be utterly devastated. You would be driven even to the brink of suicide. What is it? Is it your family? should probably say yes. Is it your reputation? Is it your reputation as a good parent? should probably say yes if you're a parent. Is it your reputation as an intelligent, productive, hard worker? Is it uh, your education? Is it good grades? If only I can get these good grades, I'll be set. And I'll feel peace. Is it your children's good grades? When you get that report card, and it's pretty good. Like, I've done it. I've done it. I've done well enough. 
Is it your social IQ, your ability to hang out with people and, uh, and talk? Something as simple as that. Is it material possessions? In our culture, you should probably just say yes. Right. Material possessions. Things like entertainment. Things like entertainment. Going to the movies. Playing video games. Distracting yourself with that all the time. I need that. If I don't have that, what am I going to do? My life would just be empty. Boring. Right? We have inappropriate relationships with these things. If we view them as substitutes for God in all of his glory. Right? And so the alternative then to idolatry... Uh, second point I want to make, there, there really are only two alternatives. There's God, and there's God's substitutes. Right? There's God, and then there's idols. There's the real, and there's the counterfeit. There's the thing that can bear the weight of all your needs and desires, and there's things that promise that they could, but they can't. Right? Um, it says in verse 19, of our text, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the evil one is the devil, right? It's Satan. The devil is the one who tempted us to idolatry in the first place, right? When he deceived the original couple into thinking that just eating that fruit would bring them a fulfillment that God would not provide them, right? They needed to turn away from God and turn to that apple or pomegranate or whatever that fruit was, right? Turn away from God to this little piece of food because it's going to give you eternal divine fulfillment in a way that the real God can't. That's what the devil fooled us into. Um, those whose hearts are fully given to idolatry are under his power, it says. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The whole world rests lazily in the arms of the evil one. That's the picture that's provided there. And we're not upset about it. We rest lazily in the arms of the devil. While, on the other hand, the devil can't even lay his hand on the child of God. Right? Uh, there is no third category. Our text doesn't provide that. The whole scripture doesn't provide that. There's no third category. There's no neutral ground. There's no spiritual Switzerland, right? neutral place. There's, there's the majority position, and then there's the truth. There's the majority position that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and then there's the truth, those who are the children of God who worship the one true God. There are only two alternatives. Just as the alternative to sickness is health, the alternative to brokenness is wholeness, the alternative to sin is obedience, to, to idolatry, the alternative to idolatry is worship of the one true God. That's your only option, right? The alternative to having a relationship with a false God, pretending that it will fulfill and sustain you forever is to have a real relationship with the one true God which really will fulfill and sustain you forever. You don't have to pretend about that. It really will happen if you're in a relationship with the one true God. Your whole life is meant to be invested in that relationship, in the triune God, the God who is love because he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who's created us in his image for relationships of eternal joy and love. Your, your life is supposed to be invested in him you were made in his image for communion with him. You're supposed to find all your security and your delight in who he is. And he, he is true, right? He really is. It says in verse 20, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding 
so that we may know him who is true. That word true is probably better translated real. Real. We know uh, him who is true, and we are in him who is real. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true or real God and eternal life. John Stott uh, says in his commentary on this passage, here are no tentative, hesitant suggestions, but bold affirmations which are beyond all dispute. Beyond all dispute, we know this. We know that God who is true, who is real, we are in him who is true, who is real. Jesus Christ is that God, that real God. And he is our eternal life. Jesus, he said about himself that he's the real bread. It's that same word uh, we usually say he's the the true bread, John 6, right? Um, He's the real bread who gives us what we need for life. He's the real vine, John 15, who gives us sweet, strong joy in relationship with God. When we're in Jesus, in him, by faith, then our relationship with God, with the one true God, as the alternative to the false gods, uh, that relationship is restored and reordered. So that leads us to the third point. The antidote, antidote for idolatry uh, is Jesus Christ himself. Right. So uh, verse 18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So in order to keep ourselves from idols... We need to turn from them to the true and living God, which we do as we're born of God. This text says we're born of God by faith uh, or through faith in his son. So new spiritual birth, being made alive again to God, being born again, new spiritual birth results in new spiritual life, new spiritual living. We're made alive to God relationally, and that means we're made dead to sin and idols and false gods. And it's Jesus, it's the one who was uniquely born of God, the one who was begotten of the Father before all worlds, who keeps us. It says that we know everyone who's been born of God doesn't keep on sinning, but the one who has been born of God, the one who was born of God keeps that one, right? So it's talking about Jesus. And he taught us to pray uh, this way. When his disciples asked him how to pray, he said, you pray this way, our Father, you know the prayer we've recited earlier, But our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he, Jesus Christ himself, he is faithful and he is powerful to answer this prayer to keep us. He says in John uh, 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He's giving us assurance of his power to save us and keep us so that no one can snatch us away from him. He keeps you from the devil, and he frees you from sin and from idolatry simply by overwhelming your heart with his reality as the God who is and the God who is for you. He's the real God. He's the real deal, right? And he overwhelms you with that reality, and the reality of the one that, that he's the God who is for you. When you know God as your Father, 
as Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father. When you know God as your Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, because you've been born again into that family through faith in His Son, you're, you know God as your Father who provides you everything you need for life, who lives to love you and give himself to you through his spirit, then idolatry becomes just the ridiculous, empty alternative. It's ridiculous. Why are we pretending like that? Being loved for your parenting is great, but having the Father's eternal love irrevocably set on you in Christ, there is no comparison. So why are you looking to your reputation as a parent? to give you what God has already given you freely in calling you his children through his son, Jesus Christ. Whatever it was you thought you were getting from that idol, whatever it was that you thought you were getting from that idol, it has been blown out of the water by God's gracious love to you, and now you're free to enjoy a right relationship with him and a proper relationship with that thing that you turned into an idol. Right? You can enjoy, truly, a right relationship with God as your father and a proper relationship, a restored relationship to that thing that you turned into an idol. The Father's love sets us free from idols. And we see his love at work clearly in the life of his son, which is why John says that uh, he who was born of God protects us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, through his living on our behalf, the perfect human life, and through his dying on our behalf, the death that we deserve, to die under God's wrath. He protects us from sin. He protects us from the devil himself. He protects us from paths that lead to eternal death. He keeps us, and no one's able to snatch us out of his hand. He keeps us on the path that leads to eternal life in him with his Father. He says uh, in John 14, I mean, we're familiar with the first verse here, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you continue on, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. We know God's love. We know the Father. He's not hidden from us. We see him in Jesus Christ. We've seen him and we've known him, the one who is true the one who is the true God and, and eternal life, says again in our passage, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, him who is real, and we're in him who is true, who is real. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the real God and eternal life. And when you know this, when you know it, when you have confidence like this about your relationship with the one true God, that he really is your Father, that you really have been born of him through faith in Jesus Christ because you've looked to the Son, and you've seen God in Him, and you've gone to Him for mercy. When you have that kind of confidence about your relationship with Him, then you'll heed John's word about idols uh, more and more, increasingly, right? They'll, they'll become exposed for what they are more and more. You won't be able to fool yourself for much longer about the way you're trying to use your family, the way you're trying to use your work, the way you're trying to use the money that you get, or the possessions that you have, or the enter- entertainment that you pursue. You won't be able to fool yourself about those things for very much longer. They're fine things. They're terrible gods. They're false gods that can't deliver on their promises. They're insatiable gods that will devour your whole life 
and they'll leave you empty. They're counterfeit gods who would never die for you. They would never die for you for love's sake. Not like the real God has in the person of his son. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So whenever God has mercy on us, Whenever he has mercy on us, letting us see the truth about our idols in light of who he is, who he really is, who we know him to be because of Jesus Christ, let's trade those in for the real thing, right? Trade them in. It's really the only sensible thing to to do, and by God's grace, we may do it. So, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're glad to be able to call you our Father by your grace to have the relationship with you that we were made for, that we have turned away from in our sin and our idolatry, yet you have won our hearts back over and you've uh, restored us to a real relationship with you through Jesus Christ, your Son. We uh, trust in him, we put our trust in him, and we, uh, we believe that he is who he says he is and that uh, he did everything necessary for us to be restored to relationship with you. And we pray that the reality of that, uh, the reality of you as the true God and him as the true God, we pray that that reality would overtake our hearts and minds increasingly so that we would be uh, kept from sin, so that we would be able to flee from idols and, uh, and have a proper relationship to the good things that you've given us, that we would not love the gifts more than the giver, but that you uh, would be the center of our hearts and minds always. Because in you is true delight and true love and peace and joy and security and contentment forever. And we're glad, we're so glad that you have come into the world to show us this and to make this true for us. And we pray that, um, that you would lift up our hearts, that through this um, excitement about who you are and what you've done for us, uh, others would see the folly of idolatry and that they would see the glory of the one true God and be drawn to you through your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.